If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, right in the middle pretty much, Acts chapter 13, as we continue our study in this history of the early church and seek to join in on the unstoppable, ever-expanding, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. Acts 13. Agatha Christie's play, The Mousetrap, holds the world record for the longest running play of all time. You are nodding like you knew this. I did not know this. You've seen it. Oh my goodness. There you go. Well, then you know all the, everything I'm going to say. It opened in 1952 and it's run for 66 years. Um, the website for the St. Martin's Theater in London where Trevor and Carolyn have been, uh, and where it's performed for 66 years, uh, most of those 66 years, not all of them, but for the majority, it says that there have been no fewer than 474 actors and actresses appearing in the play, 279 understudies, 142 miles of shirts have been ironed, and over 500 tons of ice cream sold. I imagine that a lot has changed over 66 years of this play running, but if you could get yourself to London by tomorrow and you spent 30 pounds for a ticket uh, and you showed up for Monday's 7.30 p.m. performance, there's still tickets available, just in case you wanted to know. Uh, do you know it would be exactly the same as it was on opening night? The play. Lots has changed around the play, but the play itself would be the same. The plot and the characters and their names and everything that happens, and even the surprise twist ending, which I'm told you're supposed to keep secret, uh, it, would be, it would all be the same. For 66 years, this play has been running, and the play itself has not changed. In our journey through the book of Acts, we have yet to hear Paul preach. We haven't heard a sermon from Paul yet. We've heard sermons from Peter and from Stephen and from others, and so we might wonder when he finally does preach, when we finally hear him, what are we going to hear? Will the fact that, um, that he and Barnabas have entered into this new geographical territory, they're in a new spot, will that mean that the message is going to, to change? Will who Paul is, this, this unique individual, well, who he is mean that the pronouncement that he gives is different from Peter's? Well, the message that Paul preaches when we hear him preach in Acts 13, will it be the same? In short, the answer is yes, it will be exactly the same. What we find here, among other things, is that Paul preached the exact same gospel as those before him. Nothing changed. The plot, the characters the call to repentance and faith, the promise of forgiveness and freedom, they were all exactly the same. The message was the same. And today, not 66 years later, but nearly 2,000 years later, the message is exactly the same. Because the good news was and still is all about Jesus. That's the simple thought that I want us to think about this afternoon, the good news was and still is all about Jesus. We could learn a lot more, and we will learn a lot more than just that from Acts 13, but let's hang our hat on that. The good news was and still is all about Jesus. And I want to say that, sisters and brothers in Christ, that's something to take great joy in. 
that the message that we will hear Paul proclaim is the exact same one that we have heard, and it's the same one that we still today in our church, by God's grace, and in all true churches throughout all the ages, it's the same message that we have preached. It's a joyful thing, but it's also a sobering reality, isn't it? It makes us want to be sure that, that we keep the good news clear, that, that we don't twist it, that we don't mess it up, that we say what God has said throughout all the ages, that we're not distracted by other gospels, that we're not falling into other doctrines that are of our own invention. We want to keep the gospel clear. And so we can be thankful for a passage like this that shows us the great wonder and joy that comes from the gospel, but that also lays it out so clearly so we can say, yes, that's what we're still saying, that's what we still believe, that's what we preach, and that's what we proclaim as individuals and as a church. So I want to invite you to listen closely to this passage so that we can rejoice in what God has done, but also so that we can continue to speak clearly the good news that's been handed down to us, a good news that was and still is all about Jesus. This is a longer passage. We're going to read Acts 13, verses 13 through 52. If you want to kind of see an outline to help you follow along, verses 13 through, um, through 15 are some introductory notes that, that Luke's going to give us. And then beginning in, in verse 16, we're going to, to see uh, Paul's sermon. And that sermon's going to run from verses 16 uh, through verse 41. Uh, lots of different quotations from the Old Testament scriptures that you'll find, but that's, a, that's about the length of the sermon, verses 16 through 41. And then verses 42 through 48, it, it shows the reaction that day as well as the following week and even in the, the following weeks after that as people respond to the gospel. So introductory notes, and then we have Paul's sermon, and then we sort of have the reaction beginning in verse 42. So with that said, hear the word of the Lord from Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, with, with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Then after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no 
But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The heart of this text is found in Paul's sermon there in verses 16 through 41 and in the response of those who heard them. But before we get there, Luke does give us these sort of introductory notes that help us understand exactly what was happening specifically on this particular occasion, but also generally in this missionary journey. And so I want to just point out from those first few verses, uh, three of those introductory notes. 
So first, as we think about these, these men who had been sent out on this missionary journey from Antioch, we see first the elevation of Paul. It's just something to note, the, the elevation of Paul. The text previously spoke of Barnabas and Paul in that order, but in verse 13, Luke writes about Paul and his companions, and verse 46 speaks about Paul and Barnabas, and obviously it's Paul who speaks to the crowd in verse 16. And in all of this, Luke is showing us the rise of Paul as a unique leader within the early church. We might wonder if this had any effect on the unity of this mission team, of this uh, this partnership between Paul and Barnabas. But if we understand Barnabas at all, uh, we can be fairly certain that he took no issue with the switch. Uh, In fact, he may have been instrumental in Paul's rise to, to prominence. There's no hint of jealousy here in this text, which stands in contrast actually to the jealousy of the religious leaders that we see at the end of this passage. Uh, And it teaches us this truth, that if we desire God's glory above our own, a divisive spirit has no soil to take root in. If our desire is for God's glory above our own, then a divisive spirit has no soil to take root in. I think that's true of Barnabas. No jealousy. Paul, you take the lead. You preach. Also, regarding this team from Antioch, there's a second note, not just the elevation of Paul, but this one's a little bit less encouraging. It's the desertion of John Mark. We note uh, that Mark has left them, it says. John has left them. Before we get there, geographically, the group left the island of Cyprus and sailed northwest to Perga, which is a city that, uh, was, that is in an area known as Galatia. So when you think about that region there, it's Galatia. It's in modern-day Turkey now and actually has some really impressive ruins. So if you ever do a Mediterranean cruise, you might get off and go see the ruins ruins of Perga. Perga was in the vicinity of where Paul had been born in Tarsus. And so we find that they went from Cyprus, which was Barnabas' home island, up towards Galatia and to an area that Paul knew to one degree or another. So they're heading to their their hometowns. Um, And it was here in Perga that John Mark left them. There's few details here about why, but we find out later that Paul considered this departure departure to be a desertion. He says, John Mark has deserted us. Uh, And it's only in Paul's last letter to 2 Timothy that he eventually says that, that Mark was useful to him again. Um, we don't know exactly why John Mark left. It could have had to do something with the difficulty of the journey. Um, It could have had to do something with the persecutions that they faced. I find it interesting that it says that when he returned, he didn't return to Antioch, he returned to Jerusalem. This is conjecture, but it raises in my mind the possibility that it could have been Paul and Barnabas' bold proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles that troubled John Mark that maybe he wasn't as far down the road on that, with that thought about Jesus being the Savior of the world and the Lord of all nations. He wasn't as far down the road as maybe Paul and Barnabas were. And so he wanted to get back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem where the, the Christianity was a little bit more firmly, firmly rooted in, in Judaism than what he had grown up with. Um, 
this was certainly something that the early church struggled with. We're going to see it in the book of Acts. They struggled with this transition. So maybe that's what Mark was struggling with. Whatever the reason, uh, John Mark, who had been sent to assist Paul and Barnabas, is now no longer with them. So we assume it's just Paul and Barnabas now on their own. Uh, a final introductory note is the method of ministry that they had. What's the method for uh, Paul and Barnabas? We get some, some clues about how they went about, about ministry. Uh, from Perga, they, they went 120 miles north to the city of Antioch, uh, which is usually called Pisidian Antioch, so that we don't get confused with Syrian Antioch, which is where they had come from. Um, and it's here that on a certain Sabbath, a Saturday, probably early in the morning, they went to the town synagogue. The synagogue uh, would be the place, is the name of the place where the Jewish people gathered to pray and to, to worship. And they went in, they sat down, and they listened. They listened to the readings from the law, the readings from the prophets that would have been read every week, just like we read scripture together every week. The scene sort of uh, reminds us of where Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue and he's there. And in the same way that happens with Jesus, they send word to him and say, would you like to come and talk? Uh, would you like to offer a word of encouragement? So Jesus gets up and reads and they do the same with Paul. Paul's invited to share a word of encouragement. It's not uncommon, I guess, for a visiting rabbi to be invited to share a message. This happens when we go to the Philippines. If you're a pastor and you're in the church, you're probably going to be preaching that morning because you're visiting. Uh, and so this is a, a common practice in the synagogue. Besides, though, this picture of what a first century synagogue service was like, there's details about the method of, of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, first, we notice that they, they started in the synagogue, and that's, that's Paul's pattern. He always goes to the synagogue first. Um, Paul says in verse 46 that they're compelled to take the message of salvation to the Jews first. He talks about this in Romans, the, the gospels of the Jew first, but also to the Greek and so Jesus, he's the savior of all people, but he is also the Messiah of the Jewish people in particular, the one that they'd been waiting for. And so there would have been probably a hope that by going to the synagogue, there'd be background and that people would be more readily of, ready to hear this message about Jesus. Uh, another thing we can note is that they don't force themselves on this gathering. They, they sit and they wait. There's not a picture of Paul sort of bursting through the back door uh, and causing a scene. What's he do? He goes in, he sits, he listens, and he waits to be invited to speak. And in their patience, I think these brothers remind us that in life in general, but in evangelism in particular, there's, there's great value in letting people feel respected and letting people be heard before we open our mouths and tell them what we want to say. The gospel is naturally offensive to our human pride and it disrupts the way we naturally live our lives. But our presentations of the gospel don't have to be offensive and disruptive. We can come to people with respect and with compassion and with patience and recognize that sharing the gospel doesn't always begin with what we have to say. Sometimes it begins with hearing a person's story with sympathetic ears that's vital to embodying the love of Christ, to listening to where they're at, to understanding who they are, to understanding their, their past and their present struggles. And that in listening, we open the door to share the gospel with them. So we see they go to the synagogue, we see they're patient and they wait. A final insight maybe into their method is that they were ready to speak. 
They were ready to talk. They were ready to share the gospel. When asked if they had a word to share, Paul stands up and he's got a word to share. <laughs> he was ready to go. He didn't say, no, we're okay. He was, he was ready just as he counseled Timothy to be. He was ready in season and out of season. He modeled the advice of Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter says, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So thinking about this method, it just makes me want to pause and ask, brothers and sisters, do, do we sit with people? Do we build respectful, kind, patient relationships with friends and with strangers where they know that they've been heard by us? They know the love that comes with just hearing them. And when the op- opportunity comes, are we ready to offer a word of encouragement? A word about who Christ is, a word tailored to the individual or to the group in front of us, but a word that's centered on Jesus. Paul was more than ready. By God's grace, through his spirit, and through the unique mind and personality of Paul, a message came out. And that's what I want to look at next, is this, this message. But as we look at it, we see that it was tailored to, to the moment. Uh, the moment of this in this particular place to this specific people. It was for this Jewish audience. It's unlike um, the sermons that we're going to hear him preach in Athens or, or elsewhere. He sat in the synagogue. He heard the morning's readings from the law and from the prophets. And then he stood up and he talked about Jesus. And he did it from the law and from the prophets. If we think about Paul's sermon and we look at it, we we note that he opens in verse 16 with an appeal for everyone to listen, to not simply hear his words, but to pay close attention to them, to have ears to hear, as Jesus often said. And in this call to listen, do you notice that it's a little bit different than Peter? Remember, Peter Peter will say something like, men of Israel. But what does Paul say? Men of Israel and you who fear God. He includes the the Gentile uh, converts to Judaism who were there. He acknowledges that there were God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue. He addresses both groups. He he acknowledges that this is a mixed company of sorts, and in doing so, he honors those Greeks that are there. He invites everyone to listen to this good news, because the good news of Jesus is for everyone. It's a message of forgiveness and freedom for all people, no exceptions. And so everyone should be invited to listen, hear the word of the gospel centered in Christ. So there's this introduction in verse 16. And then Paul gets his hearers to Jesus by way of the history of Israel. So if I was going to put a title on verses 17 through 25, this is going to outline Paul's sermon. This is how I'd outline Paul's sermon. Verses 17 through 25, he says, Jesus is the culmination of biblical history. Jesus is the culmination, the climax of biblical history. Everything from the past is pointing to Jesus. You notice in verses 17 through 19, he summarizes about 450 years of Israel's history. He was pretty succinct here. He alludes to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the slavery in Egypt, the deliverance from Egypt, the wilderness wanderings, and the conquest of the land of Canaan under Joshua. Verse 20, he talks about the period of the judges, and then he quickly moves to Samuel, who was Israel's final judge and the one who anointed Saul and David, the first kings of Israel. And then Paul, without pausing for a breath, moves from King David to the coming of Jesus. 
and he identifies him as the promised Savior. He seems to skip over all of the the prophets. He's going to come back to them. But he also mentions John the Baptist here. And John the Baptist was the last and the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets. Interestingly, I think, besides Acts 19, this is the only mention of John the Baptist outside of the Gospels, which fits John. He wanted to fade to the background. And it fits this context context because the spirit of John the Baptist was to consistently and constantly point to Jesus. And that's what Paul wants to do. I want to show you who Christ is. I imagine, though, for those listening, if you're thinking about this in a synagogue, that the move from David directly to Jesus would have felt like a really sharp left turn. But it made perfect sense to Paul because he had come to see that Jesus is the key to all the Old Testament shadows. He's the one that all of Israel's history was pointing to. He's the fulfillment of everything that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David spoke about and did. We talk about this in our Fellowship of the Word trainings about how all the stories of the Bible are like side roads and on-ramps that get us onto the highway that leads us to Jesus. Of course, we want, to, we want to read those stories in their context. We, understand, we want to understand what they're saying to their original audience. But we also want to see how all of them are pointing to the arrival of Jesus. Jesus, who is the second Adam. Jesus, who is the, the greater Abraham, who blesses all the nations. He's the greater Moses, who delivers us from the, the slavery of sin. He's the greater David, who's perfectly pure and perfectly aligned with God's heart. And so Paul reminds us to look for Jesus as we read the Old Testament. He's on every page of the scriptures because he is the culmination. He's the climax of biblical history. From this history lesson culminating in the arrival of Jesus, Paul moves on to more recent events. Uh, Verses 26 through 37 I just call these, Jesus was rejected and vindicated. He's talking about who Christ was, and he says, Jesus was rejected by those in Jerusalem and vindicated by God. I think verse 26, he says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. It feels in some ways like he's refocusing his readers or his his listeners, that he's talked about Jesus and you can almost hear the murmur come about. So Paul says, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Track with me. Don't shut me down just yet. Just listen to what I have to say about who Jesus was. The history lesson in verses 17 through 25 focuses on what God had done. It's God's activity. He is, he's the subject of all the verbs. He's the one choosing, making, uplifting, putting up with, destroying, giving, removing, raising up. God's the one that's working. But in verses 27 and 29, we see some other people start to act, namely those in Jerusalem, the rulers in Jerusalem. And Paul describes them as those who had heard the prophets read every Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? That's in verse 27. It talks about these rulers and the people of Jerusalem who, who had heard the, the prophets read every Sabbath. He connects them to the people that he's now talking to in the synagogue. He connects those in Jerusalem who had rejected Jesus with those that were sitting in front of him because they had missed the Messiah. Not only did they miss him, but they rejected him. They crucified him. They, they buried him. And that's the danger for the people in Antioch. It's the danger for us as well. And yet Paul also shows us that all these rebellious actions 
that, that we're, we're told that it was God who was acting. The, the work of their hands in verse 27 fulfilled what the prophets had written. And in verse 29, they, they, what they did served to accomplish everything that was written about Jesus. In their rejection of Christ, God was actually covertly working through them to accomplish his purpose. Like we saw last week, those who want to make the straight ways of God crooked just become a stepping stone for his glory and his ways. After using evil for good, God then works openly and overtly once again and he raises Jesus from the dead. And in the resurrection of Jesus, the Father announced that what the people of Jerusalem had thought about Jesus was dead wrong. Jesus was and he still is vindicated by his resurrection. He's proven to be exactly who he claimed to be. He's the Son of God sent to be the Savior of all the Father's true children through repentance and faith. Alongside this witness of the resurrection, Paul pulls in more witnesses from the scriptures for these Jewish brothers and sisters. Talks about how Jesus was the son of God, how he was the one who brings the blessing of David, how he's the, the, the king who dies but does not see corruption, uh, but rises from the dead. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He's the one that all of the prophets have been pointing to. He's the one Israel has been singing about in the Psalms. He is, as verse 26 announces, the message of salvation that has been sent to us. And now Paul is standing in their midst and he's telling them that the promise, all of those promises have come true, which brings us to the culmination of the sermon in verses 38 through 41, in this final appeal, appeal where he offers them a choice. Verses 38 through 41, I just call it a choice, forgiveness and freedom or death. Paul lays it out. Here's a choice for you. You can have forgiveness and freedom or you can have death. Hear these words from verses 38 through 39, the culmination of the sermon. I'm sorry, 38 through 41, and my favorite part of the sermon. Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. This is the good news. It's not health and wealth and prosperity. It's not purpose and meaning in life. It's forgiveness of sins before the face of God, the just judge of the whole earth. It's the cleansing and wiping away of our sins so that God no longer holds them against us because Christ has borne them and paid for them. And joined to that forgiveness, Paul announces freedom. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. There's freedom, freedom from the demands of the law. The gospel offers freedom and justification that the law and the sacrifices and the rituals could only point to. 
in Jesus were set free and were justified because what Romans 8 says is true. What the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did. The law couldn't do something. It couldn't save us. So God did it by sending his son. Here's your homework assignment if you want to know what Paul means by freedom. I think the best place to go is the book of Galatians, which is actually written to the churches in Galatia, which is where this church is at. And it deals with their desire to be enslaved to the law again, despite having been freed by Christ. So I invite you, if you want to know what Paul means by being freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, listen to Galatians this week. I did it while I was washing the dishes this afternoon, and it was really enlightening. So it's simple. It, it's only six chapters, and you can listen to it in a short period of time on a commute or while washing the dishes if you want. But uh, it'll help you understand what, what is meant here by being freed from everything that the law could not free you from. But Paul offers this choice, and he announces forgiveness and freedom. I got to this place when I was preparing the message and I, I thought I should be more excited about this. And I, I just wondered if, if my lack of excitement or jubilation or, or joy means that maybe I've heard this message of forgiveness and freedom too much. And then I thought, maybe I just haven't heard it enough. Maybe we forget what is going on here. We forget the other side of this. We forget that if we reject the offer of forgiveness and freedom, then the only other choice is death. That apart from God's grace, that's the choice we will make. But if we are forgiven through faith in Christ, if we're freed from the demands of the law, then we sit as people appointed to faith in the gospel a gospel that, that all generations have longed for, that the entire Old Testament was pointing to, that's fulfilled in Christ, that many have rejected, and a message that Jesus came to bring and has been passed down to us now that we can hear it. The message was, was put before this crowd in Antioch, and God's grace and God's judgment are seen in their response. Some people beg to hear more. And, and the, the following week, we're told, that almost the entire town comes out to hear this message. What? We can be forgiven? We can be freed from the law? I need to hear more about this. Everyone shows up to hear this message. But the judgment of God is also seen in the jealousy that arises in the hearts of the Jewish leaders that see the crowds coming to hear Paul and Barnabas and then contradict them. I'm reminded again, beware of jealousy. These these Jewish leaders, in verse 50, it says they incite the devout and leading people. Then they stir up a persecution. And finally, they drive away these men who had come to proclaim forgiveness and freedom to them. They act just like the people in Jerusalem did. They fulfill the prophecy of Habakkuk in verse 41. They don't believe the work, even though it's told to them. Do You see that? I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. They didn't believe. They didn't listen. They reject the gospel. But remember, if the good news of the gospel was and still is all about Jesus, then the rejection of the gospel is a rejection of Jesus. They reject Jesus. They say, we don't want you. They repudiate him as their savior. 
And in doing so, you see what Paul and Barnabas says, say? Verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Interesting to see them turning to the Gentiles, but I'm struck by that phrase, since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. They, they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. That could be sarcasm. I don't think it is. It could be that, that what those words communicate is that, that these men and women, they looked at this message that Paul is proclaiming. It's a message that says that God in Christ came in the flesh to save them. It's a message that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. It's a message that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They hear this message about Jesus, and they see the person of Jesus, and they say, there's no way. There's no way that God would do that. There's no way that I can be free from the law. There's, there's no way that I could be loved apart from keeping God's rules. If I'm going to be loved and saved by God, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to make myself worthy of that kind of love. I'm going to have to make myself worthy of that kind of salvation. I think that maybe is what they thought because that's what I want to think. I got to make myself worthy of the love and the grace of God. But the gospel is so amazing because it says in one breath, it says, you're not worthy of the love of God and you never will be because of your sin. But it also says the fact that Jesus came to earth says to us, you are worthy of his love and his salvation. The gospel says we're more sinful than we ever thought and we're more loved than we could ever dream. And there are people in that crowd that caught a glimpse of this unconditional love, people that were appointed to eternal life, and they believed, and they rejoiced, and they glorified God, Jew and Gentile, Gentile alike. But there were those who rejected the gift, and in rejecting it, they said, I'm unworthy of eternal life, and I'm going to try to make myself worthy rather than just believe. Against all likelihood, and alongside the truth that we are deeply sinful and depraved, Jesus comes to earth and he says to us, you are worthy of eternal life. Even as I say that, I struggle with it. But I think that's what Paul is telling us here. That Jesus comes and says, you are worthy of eternal life. So repent of your unworthiness and of your failure at the law and receive the worth that I'm giving you, that I'm proclaiming over you, that I'm showing you in Jesus, a worth that you can't earn. And since you can't earn it, it's a worth that you can never lose. Receive the gospel, receive Jesus. He's the savior I sent. I sent you a savior. I didn't send you a list of rules that you need to keep. And the savior says you're worthy of eternal life. So receive it. So again, hear what God says in the message of the gospel. 
what he says in the person of Jesus Christ. He says that we are chosen in him. In the message of salvation through the person of Christ, he says that he came out of love and that as unworthy as we are, he has declared that we have deep and eternal worth in him. He says that we are forgiven. He says that nothing we have done against him will ever be held against us again because Jesus has destroyed it through his death. And he says that we're free. We're free to not seek to make ourselves worthy of his love, but rather to rest in the worth that he has given us through Jesus. The good news was and still is all about Jesus. And what it's about is it's about how blindingly good and loving Jesus is as our Savior. It's about a love from the Father that is so incomprehensible because it comes to us and it says, you are worthy of eternal life. And what's also amazing is that it's open to everyone. We live in a world that's, everyone's trying to find self-worth. And we all look inside for it. We try to make ourselves worthy in this world and worthy in other people's eyes. Could it be that the gospel in Christ gives us that worth? That when we find ourselves in Christ, then we can say, here's someone who loved me. Here's a, a father who sent his son to save me. I'm rejected by everyone and everything except the God of the universe who actually decided to come to earth to save me. There's a lot of theological gymnastics that we need to jump around, but also don't, don't miss this amazing truth that when we receive the gospel, God says you are worthy of eternal life. So, if you've never received this great salvation in Christ, then I invite you to do it. I invite you to pause and think about the fact that God in Christ has spoken a deep love over you, a love that you don't have to earn, a love that you never could earn, but he comes and lives and dies and rises again to save you and to make you his child. And I invite those of you who have received it to just pause. You haven't heard it too much. You just haven't heard it enough. Maybe we haven't heard it in the same, we've heard it too often in the same way, but we need to hear it again and again. So think on this, meditate on it, and rejoice in what God has done for us in Christ. And the more we meditate on it, 
And the more we rejoice in it, the more we will be ready to announce it to others, that we will be able to tell others in this world who are seeking worth and love and satisfaction and peace in anything and everything, we can say, you know what? God actually came to earth to give it to you. And you don't have to do anything to get it except believe. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see the depth of your love for us and the wonder of the salvation that we have in Christ. Lord, that we would see Jesus coming as the Savior of the world as a wonderful statement of all that he is and his love, but also a statement that says that you love us that we are worthy of eternal life in some amazing, mysterious way. And if that's true, Lord, then you are worthy of all glory and all praise. You're worthy of our entire lives given over to you. Lord, let us stare deeply into the gospel, not just today, but throughout this week. And as we see this and these truths, that you would make us more like Christ. Pray it all in his name. Amen.